The following episode of the 9pm edict contains strong language, disturbing political ideas, and disturbing sexual references. Sunday, the 3rd of November, 2019. In this episode, we hear the truth about the moon. The best explanation for the moon is observational error. The moon doesn't exist. We ask a few hypothetical questions. Imagine if that was your name was Hunter Biden. And we'll hear about one of the newest and greatest threats to society. As these gender reveals become more popular, they're also becoming more outlandish and sometimes dangerous. This is the 9pm Quiet Australians for the Hollow Moon Political Truth. Thank God Brexit is over and done with. Are you a quiet Australian? (laughs) Yeah, the quiet Australians. They've been in the news quite a lot lately, but who are they? Who are the quiet Australians? It's hard to say, uh, I suppose. The Guardian's Nick Evershed put it well, I think. Question, how do you know if someone is a quiet Australian? Answer, don't worry They'll tell you. Harsh and true, but does it help us? Maybe we should see who isn't a quiet Australian. That would be the noisy minorities. Just in the last week, for example, the noisy minorities included climate protesters, the indigenous communities who want a voice in in parliament, and protesters against the mining industry. So... The opposite of noisy minority is what those quiet Australians are. Now, as Amanda Mead wrote in The Guardian, the editor of the Australian Financial Review, Michael Stutchbury, thinks he's a quiet Australian. He said he'd taken time off work to fly to the Northern Territory to climb Uluru because that's apparently uh, something we all have the right to do to climb this rock because fuck the Indigenous people and their wishes – Michael Stutchbury said he did plan to climb the rock a few weeks ago with one of his sons, but when they arrived at the base, it was closed. I am one of the quiet Australians, he said. So a 62-year-old white man who runs the most expensive newspaper in the country is a quiet Australian just getting on with his life and desiring to ignore the indigenous... Why does Indigenous have to be so hard to say? I was going so well. The Indigenous owners of Uluru, right? Just getting on with his life. And, you know, the Indigenous owners of Uluru who are offended by people crawling over their sacred site, well, they're noisy. Progressives, says the Prime Minister, are denying people's liberties. The liberties... Uh, to be cunts, I suppose. Now, Morrison has been going on about the quiet Australians for a while, but it was on the election night in May during his victory speech that he gave the quiet Australians credit for the coalition's miracle win. Now, remember, listen to this. This was the election that everyone expected Labor to win. 
I have always believed in miracles. I'm standing with the three biggest miracles in my life here tonight. There is children, miracles. And tonight we've been delivered another one. How good is Australia? And how good are Australians? This is, this is the best country in the world in which to live. And it's those Australians that we have been working for, for the last five and a half years, since we came to government under Tony Abbott's leadership back in 2013. It has been those Australians who have worked hard every day. They have their dreams, they have their aspirations. To get a job, to get an apprenticeship, to start a business, to meet someone amazing. <laughs> to start a family, to buy a home, to work hard and provide the best you can for your kids, to save for your retirement, and to ensure that when you're in your retirement that you can enjoy it because you've worked hard for it. These are the quiet Australians who have won a great victory tonight. How good is Australia? Judith Brett, she's an historian. She's just one of the analysts who's noted that Morrison's quiet Australians are a bit like John Howard's battlers and uh, Robert Minzy's forgotten people. They're happy and contented. They are, but somehow they're forgotten. Everyone else is getting attention and they're working hard. Now, Morrison always talks about a fair go for those who have a go. And that seems to mean that people who make a contribution are okay, but people who, quote, just seek to take are not. It's a bit, as I've said before, it's a bit like encountering someone who's drowning and say, yeah, I could help you, but how about you, how about you try a bit? How about you, you know, have a go? And then maybe later we'll we'll come and and look for you. Also notice all of the the kind of Puritan stuff, Puritan work ethic in in Morrison's victory speech. There, it's it's about working hard. It's and we've heard that in in many prime ministers. It's hard working Australians we care for, not those who for whatever reason can't work hard or won't work hard or whatever. No, 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 they they don't count. And you deserve something nice in your retirement. Because you've worked hard. Having a nice retirement when you haven't managed to work hard is somehow a moral failing. Now, in August, Michelle Grattan, the uh, well-known and uh, uh, you know senior political journalist, wrote that 
Morrison dog whistles to his quiet Australians, not in a racist way, apparently, but through deriding the bubble the Canberra bubble, and publicly putting the bureaucrats in their place. Yes, the Canberra bubble. These are issues that only politicians and journalists who cover politics care about. Don't you worry about that, as Sir Joe Bjorki-Peterson would have said. This is, this is just Canberra stuff. You get on with your quiet Australian lives and everything else will be okay. Grattan wrote... Morrison likes the practical. He looks from the ground up. It's all about Mr. and Mrs. Average from the Sutherland Shire. And that's it, isn't it, really? The Sutherland Shire as the measure of Australia. Now, nah, I reckon the ABC's Laura Tingle put it much better yesterday. Quote, The very idea of quiet Australians and noisy minorities does raise some interesting questions and sends some disturbing signals about the virtues of being quiet. And just who represents a noisy minority and who represents a legitimate community view? So let me get this right. If you're protesting, you're being noisy and being noisy is wrong. Un-Australian. The quiet Australians are never noisy because they're happy with things as they are. What's not to be happy about? This is the best country in the world in which to live. Now, the psycholinguistics of this is obvious. If you're not a quiet Australian, then you're not quiet and you're not an Australian. You're a greenie, a protester, an Aboriginal, an asylum seeker, a faggot, a queer, whatever. Love it or leave it. And we'll even help you leave. Quiet Australians. No, it isn't a dog whistle, Michelle Grattan. It's an air horn. Only a month ago, uh, the Home Affairs Minister, uh, Peter Dutton, you may have heard of him. He's a bit of a sex god. He said that protesters on welfare should have their payments cancelled and that there needs to be a mandatory or minimum sentence imposed on people who protest. Quote, a community expectation is that these people are heavily fined or jailed. Yet yeah, These people, they, they're someone else. They're not you. They're not quiet Australians. Apparently, the uh, community expectation that peaceful protest is a legitimate component of a liberal democracy isn't part of Dutton's mindset. <laughs> mindset. Dutton's message is simple. If you object to some aspect of how things are, you lose your rights as a citizen. Dutton says this. Morrison doesn't call him out. That gives Morrison plausible deniability. But if that isn't the result that Morrison is after, this is Dutton's kind of thing, and he disagrees, well, he should say so. I reckon you should check out Mike Sepicum's uh, recent piece for the Saturday paper, the headline, Dutton's Plan for a Surveillance State. It's about two pieces of legislation. Uh, the uh, catchily named Identity Matching Services Bill 2019 and the Australian Passports Amendment Brackets Identity Matching Services in Brackets Bill 2019. Now, this is about implementing a thing called <laughs> the capability. It's uh, intended to provide a unified uh, photo ID database 
across all of Australia's law enforcement and intelligence agencies uh, and some others, and then organisations, even in the private sector, will be able to tap into that, so when signing up online for a bank account and so on. Now, the Parliamentary Joint Committee on Intelligence and Security has recently delivered a report, and it's a bipartisan report. So, you know, both the Coalition and Labor agree that these laws should be rewritten because the privacy safeguards, uh, well, crap. It seems Dutton plans to push through anyway. Now, a hard thrust from Dutton might well be appealing, but it won't end well. Joshua Badge said on Twitter, Now might be a good time to reflect on the fact that Morrison and Dutton can legally deploy the military against civilians engaging in civil disobedience anywhere in Australia. Journalist James Jeffrey put it a little more succinctly. Be a quiet Australian or get in the van. Hello, I'm Stilgarian. Welcome to The Edict. So, America, how are things going over there? I can't possibly get my head around all of the things that have happened in the United States in the 10 weeks since the last episode of this excellent podcast. But here's a sample Uh, from the other day. Donald Trump Jr. being interviewed on Fox by the great, the greatest, the the moist and lustrous Sean Hannity. I repeat, the man being interviewed here is Donald Trump Jr. Imagine, look at how the media protects Joe Biden. Joe Biden's on tape in a quid pro quo. Either you fire him in six hours or you're not getting the billion dollars. That. Fire him, you get the billion dollars. Quid pro quo. Then you got, do you know anything about Ukraine? No. Anything about energy? Nope. Oil? Nope. Gas? Nope. Millions of dollars. Oh, that was the guy that Joe demanded to be fired. Imagine if that was your name was Hunter Biden. Except oh, I wish my name was Hunter Biden. I could go abroad, make millions off of my father's Everywhere. presidency. I'd be a really rich guy. It would be incredible. But because my name is Trump, if I took $1.5 from China, not $1.5 billion like Hunter, but $1.5, their heads would explode. Yeah, it's, uh, it's the Bidens that are uh, trading on their family name, isn't it? Not the Trumps. They would never do that. Not exactly self-aware is Junior, is he? Look, let's stay with Fox, of course, because where else do you get this stuff? Lou Dobbs uh, is described in the Pedia as a commentator, author, conspiracy theorist, anti-immigration advocate, radio show host. And of course, he's the anchor of Lou Dobbs Tonight on Fox Business Network. Listen to the this exchange. We must change the way we think about uh, the, the cost in every sense of the word, we have, to this country, we, the cost not to seek victory and, and to a, a final resolution of every conflict, victory. And what we can claim now is the victory over ISIS, over al-Qaeda to this point. Oh, the Taliban, well, that's not I said true. we can claim, I didn't say it was true. And we could have claimed at one point victory over the Taliban. What we're watching now is an inversion of everything that we intended. I love the logic. We can claim victory over ISIS. No, you can't. I I said we can claim. I didn't say it was true. I like this. It doesn't matter what is and isn't true. We can claim it. 
We can claim anything. Hurrah! I am a gorgeous 25-year-old man, lean and toned and with an IQ of 207. Love me. I can claim that. Now, there's been a lot of words this week as well about Facebook and Twitter taking different attitudes to the truth. The truth has uh, been much discussed this week. How can I summarise this? Um, Facebook's Mark Zuckerberg has reaffirmed that his company would continue to distribute political ads without fact-checking them. He said, quote, In a democracy, I don't think it's right for private companies to censor politicians or the news. Yeah, right. But this isn't about free speech, argued Siva Vadianathan in the New York Times. It's that fact-checking all this stuff would be incredibly labour-intensive, i.e., incredibly expensive and like why would Facebook want to spend money on that particularly when the ads are being paid for no this kind of fact checking isn't like a, a, a you know a minimum wage worker looking at a picture and going is that a nipple or not and I mean they get that wrong don't they this would require actual analysis and of course Zuckerberg doesn't want to pay for that well meanwhile over at Twitter uh, their CEO and noted loopy person Jack Dorsey reckons he'll just ban political advertising from that platform. I mean, sure, but for your next trick, one, define what is political advertising, and two, eat some goddamn breakfast, Jack. Eat some food. Your stupid low-calorie diet is fucking with your mind. Back to Vaidyanathan. Uh, they ask, and this is really my point, what's not political? If an ad calling for a carbon tax is political, is an ad promoting the reputation of an oil company political? In an effort, they write, to provide transparency to political ads in the US, Facebook has already shown how bad it is at distinguishing between political accounts and apolitical accounts. It often mislabels news outlets and think tanks and university departments as political entities. Although, just as a decide, aren't think tanks political entities? Think of the, uh, the IPA in Australia, the Institute of Public Affairs. Those are the false positives we know of, uh, they write. We have no idea how many false negatives Facebook has let slip through. Okay. Twitter is also bad at segregating the political from the apolitical, they write. Uh, some academics, and their names are in the article and the links are in the website, you know how to do this. These academics found that Twitter ads funded by foreign governments were not included in Twitter's political ad archive. I guess, you know, outside the United States, it isn't politics, right? So there's a good chance, uh, writes uh, this person, that there is a good chance that Twitter will fail at its declared task. Yeah, tell me about it. So what actually are the rules here? Here's uh, how Twitter's legal policy and trust and safety lead describes it. She is uh, Vijaya Gaddy. Vijaya Gaddy. Now, how, I love how this is lumped together. Legal, policy, and trust and safety all together. She tweeted the other day, here's our current definition of political advertising. One, ads that refer to an election or a candidate, or two, 
ads that advocate for or against legislative issues of national importance, such as climate change, healthcare, immigration, national security and taxes. Oh, God, give me strength. One, national for which nations? Not international politics? Not regional and local politics? I mean, where does politics stop? Two, which legislative issues are, quote, important or not important? I mean, who's deciding this? Twitter? We're fucked. And three, politics is only about elections and legislation? Really? So this will be fun to watch. What else did I uh, pick up this week? Oh, yes. The person who Trump has picked for, or a person, Trump has picked for the Education Board, writes Illuminati self-help books. So the Commission of Presidential Scholars, (laughs) uh, that's a thing, the Commission of Presidential Scholars, they award high school seniors in the country. What they award them with, I don't know. And its board includes education experts, such as the National Teacher of the Year. All right. Now, Trump gets to nominate someone to this board, and he's nominated someone called George Mentz. Now, Mentz is a lawyer, and I love this, an online professor of wealth management. Not just a professor of wealth management, he's an online professor of wealth management at the Texas A&M University School of Law. Now, here's some titles of his books. The Illuminati Secret Laws of Money, The Illuminati Handbook, I better get a copy of that, 50 Laws of Power of the Illuminati, and another one I think we all need to follow, 100 Secrets and Habits of the Illuminati for Life Success. And in a book called Spiritual Wealth Management, he says that if you conceive of your desire, you can then imagine that your goal will take place with belief, and then you will be able to retrieve the opportunity from the world's storehouse of riches. Fuck me. Now, Metz has come back, uh, uh, replying to the Denver Post, uh, that he uses the word Illuminati in his books about money and wealth partly for marketing reasons. <laughs> Who the fuck could tell? Jesus. Actually, what I should do, okay, I've decided, new regular segment on this podcast, News of the Illuminati. I reckon we need to, uh, uh, to, to be, you know, keeping track of what the Illuminati is up to. So, I'm going to finish this segment on a positive note from America, the former American Defense Secretary and uh, retired Marine Corps General James Mad Dog Mattis. He was speaking at uh, the Al Smith Memorial Foundation dinner, whatever that is, in New York the other day. Here's what he had to say. I do stand before you, as was noted here, uh, really uh, having achieved greatness. I mean, I'm not just an overrated General, I am the greatest, the world's most overrated. And this is in no small part. I will tell you, uh, I I owe New York. I owe New York for this because, Senator Schumer, have I thanked you uh, for bringing my name up in a rather contentious meeting in Washington where this grew out of. Um, So I would just tell you, too, that I'm honored to be considered that by, by Donald Trump because. He also called Meryl Streep an overrated actress. 
So I guess I'm the Meryl Streep of generals. <laughs> and, and frankly, that sounds pretty good to me. Uh, and you do have to admit uh, that between me and Meryl, at least we've had some victories. <clears throat> Elephant stamp time! Elephant stamp time! Each episode of this podcast, more or less, I award elephant stamps of approval for excellence in the category of thinking. I have five, oh, five this time. But first, some honorary mentions. Andy Nicholson for suggesting whoever invented the goat's cheese circle should get a stamp. Look it up. It was Bernard Salt. Justin Warren says the Australian Cybersecurity Centre's ham-fisted Sensicon effort was pretty special. Yes, that's when uh, the government cybersecurity agency uh, vetoed two speakers from uh, the Australian Cybersecurity Conference. Uh, and so instead of their message about whistleblowers being heard by, you know, a few hundred people, it became national news. So well done. Techoglot on Twitter it's a bit obvious, but eat a dick hippie springs to mind. This was when a Victoria police officer had EAD hippie as a sticker on their uh, uh, chest cam during the uh, the protest this week. Yeah, they're, they're going to go, well, nothing will happen to them, let's face it. Inflatable plant on Twitter. Obama complaining about cancel culture. That's too hard to explain. Look it up. L. Ron Zeno, Donald Trump for comprehending that they only impeach people who've done wrong. Yeah, yeah, that is the point, Donald. That's why you're being impeached, but never mind. Uh, and Darren, who is plumrid on Twitter, uh, points out that the Department of Home Affairs suggestion that we use face ID before allowing people to watch facials, facials, is it? Yeah, he says he had to use that pun. Sorry, I'll leave now. I agree, Darren. But I nearly did a piece on this for the podcast. Um, this is the Department of Home Affairs thought bubble that as age verification, you could hook into that thing that I previously described, or the porn sites could, the capability, so that when you log into a porn site, you turn on your webcam to send a quick selfie to the government before watching porn. Now, I'm fairly broad-minded, but that doesn't appeal to me. I know that it might for some people. Um, I'm kind of turned on by the idea of Peter Dutton having to, to look at the webcam before he sits down to watch porn or whatever posture he watches porn in. I don't think they've they've kind of uh, thought that one through. But speaking of um, face recognition, uh, check out this nine news story from Saturday. This is the stark reality in China. Scanning the faces of students to let them in to school. In the US, eyes above patrol classrooms. My face is not recognised and the door doesn't open. Now facial recognition is in Australian schools. We're really sleepwalking into a surveillance society. Now that's the voice of Terry O'Gorman. He's from the Australian Council for Civil Liberties. I sometimes get the feeling he's the only person in the Australian Council for Civil Liberties, but uh, did I keep saying civil liberties? Civil liberties. 
Loopworm's system is being trialled at five schools across Australia to mark the classroom role and has already been tested at Clarendon College in Victoria. I think new technology is good as long as it's foolproof. I'm yet to sort of hear from the, the kids or the school how successful it's been for them. It scans a person's face to mark their attendance in class, sending the information to an app, potentially on a teacher's smartphone. Who's going to get this data? What are they going to do with it? Because data is now uh, regarded as the new oil. Looplearn says it's in schools in part thanks to a federal government grant of almost half a million dollars. It's money from the same fund which Nine News revealed granted hundreds of thousands of dollars to the makers of a divorce app. The ministers standing firm. We shouldn't be limiting necessarily the development of that technology. Not the view of some states. Earlier this year the Victorian government tried to stop schools from using this product after a review found major privacy risks. Looplearn refuses to say which five schools are trialling its system but once boasted of a waiting list of more than 10. The company denies its system is classroom surveillance, insisting it meets high security standards but it can't say what makes it so secure, where that data is stored or who else other than the school potentially has access to it. Those parents should sit back and say, is it worthwhile? The federal government concedes while it's paid loop learn a tidy sum, the facial scanners are unlikely to be rolled out nationally. It's quite possible that this technology will be sold overseas. The question is, to whom? Jonathan Kersley, Nine News. On the Twitters, uh, just before I started recording this, uh, I, I saw someone pointing out that marking the role is kind of an important part of the teacher's first interaction with the students at the beginning of the day, just uh, part of the bonding, you know, see whether they, they look all right, uh, just being concerned for their welfare. But I'm sure uh, just saying, oh, yeah, there's your face you're in. I'm, I'm sure uh, that's an enormous improvement. Okay, on to the actual elephant stamps of approval for excellence in the category of thinking. Number one, uh, suggested by... Drew Mayo, uh, I'll let NBC News explain this one. It's a colourful way to make the big announcement. Boy or girl? But as these gender reveals become more popular, they're also becoming more outlandish and sometimes dangerous. This weekend, 56-year-old Pamela Crymeyer was killed at a gender reveal in Iowa. The family was trying to make the announcement with colored powder, but officials say they used gunpowder and metal tubing to set up the surprise, inadvertently creating a pipe bomb. It blew apart and one of those pieces unfortunately uh, hit the victim and, and caused death. In 2017, an Arizona man shooting at a powder-filled target sparked the sawmill wildfire, burning 47,000 acres, costing millions in damage. And this reveal of a baby boy sent passengers scrambling to safety. What you can't see, because this is a television report and this is not a television podcast, uh, you may have seen this video on YouTube. Look it up. Uh, I can't be asked, but it shows like a, a car doing burnouts and then they set off uh, a, a smoke flare which comes out blue for boy because this is how the fucking universe works. But of course, the uh, 
the flare sets fire to the car and then the pe- the whole thing goes up. It's, it's hilarious. It's excellent. Uh, but back to the cops. There's plenty of other methods to do this. The volatility of, of any type of explosive device is, is just, it's not worth it. An important reminder to prevent a joyous moment from turning tragic. Blaine Alexander, NBC News. What's the fucking point of a gender reveal party anyway, right? You just say... I, I, when, since when has this been a party? And since when are you absolutely sure that this is how your child is going to perceive their gender and the world perceive their gender? And fuck you with your blue for boys and pink for girls heteronormative cunthead bullshit. Elephant stamp to that uh, family in Iowa. Uh, number two goes to Craig Kelly, MP. This was suggested by Sweary Anthony on the line. Uh, this goes back to September, but I love this. Uh, he's a Liberal MP, obviously. Craig Kelly says that Tuvalu is floating and not sinking. So don't worry about climate change. And anyway, climate change is about a green left agenda. Uh, he was giving a speech at an Australian Monarchist League function. Uh, and uh, he had a wide-ranging after-dinner speech. Uh, that's usually code for disorganised, in which he accused the ABC of covering up crucial information about climate change to suit its green left agenda. And of Tuvalu, he says, it's a coral atoll. Even though you've had a slight sea level rise, a coral atoll actually floats on the ocean, and yet we're not told that by the ABC. Coral floats. Well, some of it does, but only when the coral is dead. Otherwise, come on, you know what coral is. You know how coral works. Number three... Oh, sorry, uh, yeah, elephant stamp to Craig Kelly. Number three, my own brain, because the other morning I woke up uh, from a long and detailed dream about Section 103B of the Copyright Act 1968. That was a ripper. Number four, a, uh, a company called Innerpod. Now, I'm assuming this was uh, supplied via Instagram. The, the layout looks looks Instagram. Uh, so the account is get.innerpod. Get in a pod. Get in a pod. Did you know, it says, that 70% of workers report feeling distracted on the job? Our pods are the perfect solution to any open plan workplace, providing a productive haven for you and your employees to work more efficiently. They're ideal for uninterrupted work, holding discussions, and making important phone calls. Uh, Each inner pod is tick, energy efficient. Tick includes power and USB ports. Tick soundproof with high acoustic rating. Tick well ventilated with two-speed ventilation fans. Inquire today and get in a pod and away from distractions. As Billabog notes on the Twitters, hurrah! Well, he didn't say hurrah. He said, oh my God, they've invented the office wall. I also like the idea that you only need not to be distracted at certain times. Only when it's important work. Shouldn't all of your work be important? Otherwise, why are you doing it? Shouldn't all... You you get this. 
Inapod. Get in a pod. Get in the fucking sea. Number five. Are you worried that your toilet smells the same each time you flush it? No, are you? Are you? Are you worried that your toilet smells the same each time you flush it? Well, worry no more. I found a funky way to switch between two scents. But there's a breath way. Breath scent switch from Apple to water lily scent with every flush. Yes, the breath scent switch. Breath, B-R-E-F, the scent switch. It delivers a different scent every time you flush your toilet. How did we live without it? So I saw this at the supermarket the other day. It's one of those things that you hang in your toilet bowl. And, you know, they come in a lot of varieties. But this one has some sort of horizontal rack arrangement with four different coloured balls in it. I didn't buy one, so I'm not sure how it switches between flushes. But I'm kind of assuming this works bit by, you know, you get each member of your family to shove a different coloured one up their ass. Like, today, oh yeah, today Darren's diarrhoea is uh, bringing your bathroom an invigorating spiced pineapple scent. Yeah, right? Elephant stamp to breath. This podcast is made possible by you, the generous listeners, through your subscriptions and one-off contributions. Uh, If you're a subscriber, I'm going to have to thank you again. I will be in touch about conversation topics and trigger words and all the things that you have have paid for. I haven't forgotten. Uh, As some of you know, I've been busy on Health Patrol uh, supporting a a close friend who's uh, having having a time. I haven't forgotten you. We, we will sort this out. Uh, this episode, it's thanks to Paul McElwee, again, Peter Leverding, again, and Wade Baumer, again, repeat customers. Love it. Thanks, guys. Uh, plus one person who wants to remain anonymous. Thank you all. If you have not yet contributed, I mean, feel free to contribute again, but if you have not contributed before, it's it's really easy. Just go to stillgerian.com slash tip. That's stillgerian.com slash tip. Or to skank.com.au slash subscribe. To subscribe, that's skank.com.au slash subscribe. You do get, or will eventually get, extra benefits when you do subscribe. Have a look. They're all cross-referenced to each other. Please consider... Kalgoorlie. Kalgoorlie. It's a mining town in Western Australia. It's officially known as the city of Kalgoorlie Boulder because those two towns merged in 1889. Then in the winter of 1893, there were some prospectors. It was uh, Paddy Hannon, Tom Flanagan and Dan Shea. There's a, a chance they were Irish. They noticed signs of gold in the area. They found it and then boom, gold rush. Uh, And ever since, gold mining, nickel mining, some other metals, that's been the major industry in Kalgoorlie up 
to today. Now, like most mining towns, particularly during a rush, the ratio of men to women was high, more than three to one at the height of the rush. Uh, so surprise, at one stage, Kalgoorlie had the largest brothel in the world, or so legend has it. Now, I mention all this not because brothels and ha-ha. I'm actually a big supporter of um, uh, the rights of the sex industry, as you may know, uh, because last month was election time, local election time in Kalgoorlie, Boulder, and one of the candidates uh, received a bit of social media virality. His name is Ian Richard Burt. He took out some ads in the local paper, the Kalgoorlie Miner. And uh, look, let's have a look at some of these. Uh, there's a link on the podcast website, all of that, you know. So here's some of his policies. I will remove all pagan Chris dismiss phallic... What? Chris dismiss? I will remove all pagan Christ dismiss... I see what he's doing. Phallic and vaginal symbols used in the festival commonly called Christmas. That is to say... Council rates will not fund the erection of annual Christmas trees, oh, nurse, wreaths, decorations, and festivities. Good God, better not have festivities. He will set in motion plans to build a maglev railway from Perth to Kalgoorlie and Kalgoorlie to Esperance. So that'll be good. Uh... He will place the word of God in St. Barbara's Square, which I assume is a place in the town, giving those who don't know the common law public access to the written word of God in the form of a cement monument to, of the Ten Commandments. Right. Ah, oh, St. Barbara is the patron saint of mining. Okay, there we go. Um, what? Okay, there's some really weird... Oh, he wants to remove the Aboriginal totem flagpole at Centennial Park. It is a symbol of division and a contrary symbol of law competing against the Christian law established by our monarch, Queen Elizabeth II, uh, for all people of this nation. In another ad, this gets better. Did you know Hitler was a Catholic and wanted a united Europe and had the blessing of the Roman Antichrist, by which he means the Pope, were the electors of Great Britain listened to when the people overwhelmingly voted to withdraw from the European Union in what is called Brexit? Were they listened to? Well, yes, they were, which is why Brexit is going ahead, you stupid twat. Uh, what else have we got here? Uh, oh, did you know that the sinking of Titanic was organised by the Jesuits? Uh, Hitler modelled his SS, the Schutzstaffel, on the Catholic Church, on the Jesuits, in fact. Uh, and the Jesuits, as I said, set up the privately owned Federal Reserve in the USA by sinking the Titanic with three wealthy bankers on it who were opposed to the Rothschild Banking Confederation of Evil. Uh, yeah, you can see where this is going. Uh, and for, for years, my people have listened to white... Well, I don't know who my people are. Have listened to white university-trained anthropologists... Oh! My Is he going... Okay. I think he might be claiming to be... Oh, yes. He is a Christian, indigenous Australian negrito, apparently. Uh... 
and he thanks the white Europeans for landing and giving Terra Australis the gospel message of Jesus Christ, which nullifies the Dreamtime myths and ridiculous cultural stories. Uh, for years, my people which he means the indigenous communities, apparently he now speaks for them, have listened to white university-trained anthropologists who have told us the lie of being here for 60,000 years when, in fact, we have been here for less than the age of the Earth, which, which would make sense, which is approximately 6,000 years, uh, which doesn't. Um, something, something, Kim James Bible, uh, it goes work. Now... You will be as shocked as I was to discover that Ian Burt is a member of the CEC, the Citizens' Electoral Council. Uh, he has, in fact, run for Australia's federal election under the CEC banner in the past. So, would you like to hear more of his views? Of course you would. He uh, Shortly before the council election last month, he was interviewed by the local ABC radio station in Kalgoorlie, Boulder, and uh, thanks to uh, ABC journalist Matt Bevan, I have a copy of uh, this interview, and now you are going to hear it. Good morning to you, Ian. Yeah, good day. Now, the first question is, tell us a bit about yourself and how you came to Kalgoorlie, Boulder. Well, I'm 48 years old. I'm the first prospector to Kalgoorlie with my parents. That was in 1971. Uh, my father worked for the railways. As a West Rail engine driver, yeah, so uh, we were on the first prospector to Kalgoorlie. I wasn't born in Kalgoorlie. I was born in Mount Lawley, actually. But, uh, yeah, I've been there for 47 of my 48 years. And uh, why did you put up your name to become mayor? Well, I'm concerned that um, they keep saying that local government is a third tier of government. That's a lie. We had two referendums in 1974 and 1988, and we said no for constitutional recognition of local government, but they still still keep on pushing the lie that local government is a third tier of government. It's wrong. So that means local government is working in fraud and they shouldn't be asking for rate every year. I pay taxes, but that's another issue as well because uh, I pay taxes because they make me into a corporation called Ian Burt in capital letters, which makes you a corporation in law. And so I pay taxes on my wages. Wage earners shouldn't be paying taxes. It's businesses that pay taxes. The more business they have, the more money they earn. And that's how government is supposed to generate wealth. So uh, what do you think the council is doing right at the moment? anything right. They're working in fraud and fraud is a, a very strong legal term and it's a wonder somebody hasn't taken me up on it because when I say that they're working in fraud, I could be taken to court for that. They're working in fraud because they're doing something which is unlawful. I believe, I believe you're, a, uh, you're a constitutionalist, is, is that what they call it? Yeah, I'm a supporter of the federal constitution. We're a constitutional monarch. Monarchy and Queen Elizabeth II is our monarch who upholds the crown. And my job in this election is to educate, to agitate, educate and organise the people to change the unlawfulness of what's happening. And uh, respecting your view, Mr. Burt, and uh, you have your... Don't call me Mr. either. I'm not a Mr. Because when you're in court, that's what the judge wants you to say. Mr. Burt, please stand up. And when you do, you put yourself in Roman jurisdiction. 
And I'd like the listeners to remember that when they go to court. When you go to court, you say, I'm a subject of Queen Elizabeth II, and I want to be judged under common law. And the judge will tell you, common law isn't recognised in this court. That's how far we've gone. Uh, So, uh, considering everything you've said, Ian, uh, I'm just curious about your vision. So, by the end, if you are elected to be mayor, what's one thing that you would like to have achieved by the end of your term? To agitate and educate and organise as many people as I can to change the corrupt system that we're working under now because time is short and it won't be long before people will wake up and find that the freedoms that they enjoyed are no longer there. That's the issue. So, uh, Ian, what characteristics do you have that would make yourself a good mayor? Well, I'm going to speak the truth. Truth is a quality of ideas. I'm speaking to people with truth. You won't get anything other than truth from Ian Burt. And just uh, finally, uh, so you've got about one minute to answer this last question. How have you funded your election campaign so far and how much have you actually spent on it? I spent $2,000 on ads in the Calgary Minor. That's all I've spent. That's your own personal money? That's my personal money. I'm not financed by anybody. I don't have uh, big money people financing me. I have a concern for my fellow citizens, okay? And this is the opportunity to give me a platform in which to tell people to warn them. That's my job as a Christian, to warn them what's going to happen. If they don't take the warning, not my problem, okay? They've been told, they know... They're going into the election with wise, wide open, okay? It's as simple as that. So they got a choice. Either they choose somebody who's going to stand up for them and fight for the Christian way of life, or they're going to vote for somebody who's going to uh, give them uh, the status quo, the same old thing, year in, year out, well, thank you very much, Ian, for being a part of the show and putting your views forward in regards to your mayoral interest and, and, and trying to get people to vote for you. Do wish you all the best on the 19th of October. Uh, that's Election Day here in Kagali Boulder with the Postal Votes. But thank you for being a part of the show. No worries. Anytime. Anytime, Ian. Well, the election was indeed held on the 19th of October and uh, let me quote from the West Australian, the uh, state, uh, the state's biggest newspaper, Incumbent Mayor John Bowler was will be sworn in to continue his role in the top job after garnering 3,008 of 5,887 votes, an overwhelming victory to say the least. Ian Burt, who caused a bit of a social media storm this week, gained 87 votes or 1.48% of the count. Better luck uh, next time, Ian. Now, it was, uh, as I said before, 10 weeks ago that the last episode of this podcast appeared. Uh, There were lots of reasons for the gap. Let's not go into them because podcasts are filled with people apologising for how long ago the last episode was. I will say, though, that Nicholas Fryer, who you sometimes hear on this podcast, uh, not long ago asked me the question, so what is this podcast about? What is... (laughs) What is the point of it? Why are you doing it? Uh, 
I mean, because it's there, I suppose. Uh, and I'm still thinking about that. So, you know, we've done public house forums where we've got together in a pub with a group of people to discuss, quote, important issues, unquote. Uh, I've visited towns in the past and I went down and visited Cronulla once and, and interviewed people there. That was fun. I've done the 9pm probe episodes, which are long-form interviews. Um, let me know which of those kind of things you find more interesting um, because quite frankly a middle-aged white man um, uh, airing his grievances about the world I'll admit is a kind of podcast which has never been done before but you know maybe I should do something else I did come up with the idea the other day of doing a gin tour now uh, some years ago uh, the cartoonists both of whom now live in Tasmania first dog on the moon and John Kadelka uh, hired some electric bicycles and toured the um, whiskey distilleries of Tasmania and out of that came a book did they do a podcast I can't remember anyway that was a thing uh, and with the rise of gin, I'm, I'm toying with the idea of, of, of doing a gin tour. I've also been thinking of, of just doing a series where I spend a week in uh, random places around Australia and actually try and explore a bit more than zooming in and, and, and doing the obvious news stories. Uh, and they could be quite simple. I mean, I noticed, for example, that Windsor, uh, just to the, the northwest of Sydney, was the third place settled in New South Wales after, I assume, uh, Sydney Cove and Parramatta, and then it was Windsor. Uh, and I thought, yeah, why not, why not stay there for a week? I can work anywhere. I can talk to the locals and have a look around. That might be a thing. I don't know. Let me know what you think. Um. By the way, did you see the story about uh, painting cows with zebra stripes the other day? Apparently, uh, and again, links on the website, if you paint cows with zebra-like stripes, uh, it cuts the amount of fly attacks on them by around 50%. Fascinating stuff. If this works, A, flies are stupid, but we knew that, Um but B, it would cut down on uh, pesticides in animal production, which uh, would be good. It would cut down on pesticide resistance in the environment. Uh, but I love this uh, <laughs> uh, this, sequ uh, this sequence from the uh, this sequence this this bit of the abstract. Uh, six Japanese black cows were assigned to treatments using a three by three Latin square design. The treatments were black and white painted stripes, black painted stripes, and no stripes. So it was an all black body surface surface. And they recorded fly repelling behaviours such as head throw, ear beat, leg stamp skin twitch and tail flick and they just had digital cameras watching all the cows and and some poor bastards had to sit down and count all that so if you are a cow and i know a lot of cows listen to this podcast uh if you want to avoid uh fly bite attacks then just uh, paint yourself with zebra stripes Now, I feel like there's been a, a bit of a theme to this episode, so it's only natural <laughs> that we now hear from David Icky, 
because obviously, uh, who Wikipedia describes as, quote, an English professional conspiracy theorist and former footballer and sports broadcaster, end quote. Now, Icky believes not only that the world is secretly run by reptilian humanoids, and I think we can all agree with that, but that the moon is hollow. The, the moon is so perfectly positioned that because of where it is, when we have an eclipse, it is the same size as the sun. That's why we have the eclipse. And the authors of Who Built the Moon say this, the moon is bigger than it should be, apparently older than it should be, and much lighter in mass than it should be. It occupies an unlikely orbit and is so extraordinary that all existing explanations for its presence are fraught with difficulties and none of them could cons be considered remotely watertight. When, when you go on and you say, where'd the moon come from? You get this story. And like so much in what we call science, that people take it as fact, it's actually a theory which repeated becomes fact. But then you go back and you find that it's a theory. And the first one is the moon was created by what's known as the whack theory or the big whack theory. And that is that a Mars type planet came in, smacked the earth, great chunk came off and became the moon. When the physics of that didn't work out, they came up with the double whack theory, where the Mars-type planet hit the Earth, bit comes off or whatever, and then the Mars-type planet thinks, well, I'll give, him, I'll give him one with the right, I'll give him one with the left, comes back and whacks it again, the old one too. Talk about bloody desperate. And the truth is, and, and, and honest scientists will tell you, they have no bloody clue where the moon come from, and it shouldn't, by physics, be there. This guy, um, Isaac Asmanov, a Russian professor of biochemistry. Wait, did you hear that? This guy, um, Isaac Asmanov, a Russian professor of biochemistry. I am pretty sure he means Isaac Asimov, the science fiction author. Uh, sure, he was born in Russia, but he's very definitely American, or was American, he's dead now. And all right, he did have a Master's of Arts degree in chemistry in 1941, and he got his PhD in chemistry in 1948. I can't help but think he is being quoted out of context. Despite all that, Big Whack Theory would be a great title for a, a television sitcom. This guy... Um Isaac Asmanov, a Russian professor of biochemistry, did a lot of writing on, on, on this sort of stuff. And he said this quite rightly, we cannot help but come to the conclusion that the moon by rights ought not to be there. The fact that it is, is one of those strokes of luck almost too good to accept. Small planets such as Earth with weak gravitational fields might well lack satellites. In general then, when a planet does have satellites, those satellites are much smaller than the planet itself. Therefore, even if the Earth has a satellite, there would be every reason to suspect that at best it would be a tiny world, perhaps 30 miles in diameter. But that is not so. Earth is not only has a satellite, but it is a giant satellite, 2,160 miles in diameter. How is it then that that tiny Earth has one? Amazing. Some scientists don't even talk about a planet satellite relationship but a planet planet relationship the moon's bigger than pluto the best explanation for the moon is observational error the moon doesn't exist that scientist said another one from nasa it seems easier to explain the non-existence of the moon than its existence look icky is just warming up folks i don't know 
where this lecture is from. Sorry, but after a very uh, look, look it up on YouTube. A link on the podcast website for fuck's sake. Why do I have to keep repeating this? Uh, after a very short time, Icky finally gets on to the hollow moon. He quotes some comments uh, here, and we'll hear them from scientists. Uh, when they first did seismic experiments on the moon uh, during the Apollo program, which is, of course, 50 years ago. This is what I'm saying, and others have said, is that it's a hollowed-out planetoid. In November 1969, the moon was hit by a lunar module to the equivalent of one tonne of TNT. The shock waves built up, and NASA scientists said the moon rang like a bell. Morris Ewing, a co-director of the seismic experiment, told the news conference, as for the meaning of it, I'd rather not make an interpretation right now, but it is as though someone had struck a bell, say in the belfry of a church, a single blow, and found that the reverberation from it continued for 30 minutes. Now um, we'll come to this bigger whack. Uh, a launch vehicle struck the moon with the equivalent of 11 tons of TNT, A NASA scientist said the moon reacted like a gong and continued to vibrate for three hours and 20 minutes to a depth of up to 25 miles. Um, Ken Johnson, a supervisor of the data and photo control department during the Apollo missions, told Who Built the Moon author Alan Butler that the moon not only rang like a bell, but the whole moon wobbled in such a precise way that it was almost as though it had gigantic hydraulic damper struts inside it. These two Russian scientists from the Soviet Academy of Scientists wrote an article in 1970 in Sputnik magazine in Russia headed, Is the Moon the Creation of an Alien Intelligence? And all these years later, um, it indicates to the fact that they were right. What they point out, and others point out, is the outer surface of the moon is extremely hard and contains minerals like titanium. Moon rocks have been found to contain processed metals, including brass and mica, and the elements uranium-236 and neptunium-237 that have never been found to occur naturally. Uranium-236 is a long-lived radioactive nuclear waste and is found in spent nuclear fuel and reprocessed uranium. Neptunium-237 is a radioactive metallic element and a byproduct of nuclear reactors and the production of uh, plutonium. Some lunar rocks have been found to contain 10 times more titanium than titanium-rich rocks on Earth. Titanium is used in supersonic jets, deep-diving submarines and, the, and spacecraft. Dr. Harold Urey, the uh, winner of the Nobel Prize for Chemistry, said he was terribly puzzled by the rocks from the moon and in particular their titanium content. So here's the logic. There's way more titanium on the surface layers of the moon than the surface layers of the Earth. So he says. They use titanium to make high-tech things like aircraft and submarines and spacecraft. That's true. Therefore, the moon is a spacecraft. Or a submarine or an aircraft, or none of those things. I'm going for submarine myself. I'm convinced. Are you convinced? Are you a material scientist? Are you a geologist? Please, uh, no, don't. there are no comments. Don't get at me in the comments. Uh, please get in touch. I would like to hear more about this because I think it's pretty clear that the moon is a spaceship. Anyway, let's jump ahead a bit where Icky quotes... Ah, oh, some more scientists. They say it's a hollowed out planetoid, and they say if you're going to launch an artificial Sputnik, then it is advisable to make it hollow. At the same time, it would be naive to imagine that anyone capable of such a tremendous space project would be satisfied simply with some kind of giant empty trunk um, hurled into a near-Earth uh, trajectory. 
it is more likely that what we have here is a very ancient spaceship, the interior of which was filled with fuel for the engines and materials and appliances for repair work, navigation instruments, observation equipment, and all manner of machinery. In other words, everything necessary to enable this caravel of the universe to serve as a Noah's Ark, appropriate, of intelligence, perhaps even as the home of a whole civilization, envisaging a prolonged thousands of millions of years existence and long wanderings through space, thousands of millions of miles. Naturally, the hull of such a spaceship must be super tough in order to stand up to the blows of meteorites and shock fluctuations between extreme heat and extreme cold. Probably the shell is a double-layered affair. The basis is a dark armoring of about 20 miles in thickness and outside of it some kind of more loosely packed covering, a thinner layer averaging about three miles. In certain areas where the lunar seas and craters are, the upper layer is quite thin, in some cases uh, non-existent. And the recording just stops there for some reason. And so does this podcast. Goodbye. Yes, that's all the edict for now. Uh, details on the website, stilgarian.com slash category slash edict, whatever. Sort that out. If you want to support it, do the thing. Stilgarian.com slash chip or skank.com.au slash subscribe. The next episode will be when I bloody well feel like it. Till then, I'm Stilgarian. Bye. The 9pm edict is a skank media production. Sorry. Red dresses. Uh, in Infinite Love is the Only Truth, a 2005 uh, book, Icky introduces his three categories of people. The Brotherhood are interactive software programs or red dresses. They lack consciousness and free will, and their human bodies are holographic veils. A second group the sheeple, who are the vast majority of humanity, are conscious, but they do as they're told and are the Brotherhood's main energy source. They include the repeaters, who are people in positions of influence who repeat what other people tell them. Uh, he cites doctors, teachers and journalists as examples of the repeaters. Now, the third and smallest groups are those who see through the illusion. They are usually dubbed dangerous or mad, the red dress genetic lines interbreed obsessively to make sure their bloodlines are not weakened by the second or third levels of consciousness because consciousness can rewrite software. <laughs>